Why would anyone become Christian? If you want to be popular, don't become a Christian. If you want to be free to live as you please and do as you please, certainly do not become a Christian. Today, the America that drew first breath from Christian values of liberty and justice, morals such as temperance, chastity, and marital fidelity, and the virtues of faith and hope and love, the America that grew from Christian principles that have set the country apart as the most charitable nation in the world is now a secular, post-Christian America in which the church is increasingly viewed as an object of blame, criticism, scorn, and derision. Why? How has the church, which once charted the course for American culture, become the target of disdain and only an inconvenient obstacle in the way of cultural progress. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian murdered by the Gestapo at the end of World War II for his participation in a plot to murder Adolf Hitler, attributes the breakdown of Christian community to what he calls wish dreams. In other words, definite ideas of what the Christian community could, could be and should be that we all bring with us into church and want to realize in it. Today, in response to cultural change and shrinking numbers, congregations are regularly turning their attention from what is most important to wishful visions of, popular, of a popular, perfect church community. The result, in effect, is not healthy, growing churches. The result, in effect, is churches, liberal, conservative, progressive, orthodox, loosely bound together by shared causes, changing strategies, popular opinions that are indecipherable at best, if not unappealing to most non-Christians, indistinguishable from the wider culture, and powerless to drive cultural change in any direction it's not already going. Visionary dreaming, as Bonhoeffer would call it, supplants grace with a neo-legalism, tacking biblical, spiritual, moral, and ethical compromise onto the gospel at levels both great and small. Bonhoeffer asserts, when imposed on the church, God and the dreamer wish dreams cause the dreamer to hate the church family, God, and ultimately himself. When the reality of the church stands in opposite opposition to the wish dream. Bonhoeffer writes, the one who loves the dream of a community more than the Christian community becomes the destroyer of the church. To which I would also add, and to his own faith. Bonhoeffer declares boldly, God hates visionary dreaming. How do we begin the work of replanting King of Kings in East Charlotte? 
I would certainly suggest that programs, strategies, morals, ministries, causes, and visions are important. They are. But what is most important, non-negotiably important, is something greater than all our plans and schemes. We live in the real world with real people, with real problems and real imperfections. People do not come to faith because they are attracted to a wish dream. People do not come to faith because they want to be part of our causes or catch a new vision. People do not come to faith because they're looking for a diverse community of people in which they can feel comfortable. People come to faith for one reason and one reason only. Because they need. <laughs> because they are in need. If we are to meet that need, we will do it with the only thing, with the only answer, consistent, unwavering, to the most important question you will ever have to answer. Why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? If I were to ask you this morning, why are you a Christian? I would expect to hear a variety of testimonies. Some may say I was born in a Christian home and I can't remember a time that I didn't believe in Jesus. Some may reflect on a mountaintop experience at a youth retreat. Some may have an enviable testimony of being trapped in a life of hopelessness, addiction, abuse, at the point of ending it all when God intervened. In my experience, the greatest indicator of a healthy church is not, a strong, is not strong biblical preaching, uh, robust giving, steady growth, a large staff, or a multitude of programs or causes. The indication of a healthy church is where testimony has taken place, where people are telling about how they came to faith and when they came to faith because they're coming to faith. That's the difference between a good church and a real church. I mean, an unreal church. I love to hear testimonies. But how we became Christians is not the answer to the question, why are you a Christian? At the beginning of his little book, Why I Am a Christian, John Stott takes nothing away from the importance of personal testimony, but encourages readers to look beyond the circumstances leading up to a decision for Christ. Quoting Francis Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven, Stott writes, I fled him down the nights and days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down labyrinthian ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter up vistaed hope I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fears. From those strong feet that followed after, but with hurried chase I unperturbed and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee. Who betrayest me? Stott's point is this. Jesus is the hound of heaven. 
He pursues us as we flee from him and hide from him through ups and downs, hopes and fears, tears and laughter, regardless of how long, fast or far, right up to the point where the betrayal of everything else we think matters is met with the voice of Jesus inviting us to trust him. Even when we turn from him, flee from him, hide from him, wrestle with him, lash out at him, blame him, scream at him, attack him, he pursues us until we have run as far as we can run and cannot stand. Hidden in the darkest of places, screamed until we have no words, and driven nails until our arms are too tired to take another swing. Like Stott, I think that being found by Christ is wonderful, is a wonderful truth on the other side of finding him. It too points in the right direction, but is not the answer to the question, why are you a Christian? Luke chapter 4 marks the start of Jesus' public ministry. He has just been baptized by John in the Jordan. The Holy Spirit has descended on him like a dove, and the voice of God has declared, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Previously, in chapter 1, we discovered that Luke, whose feast we celebrate today, who is a Gentile, is writing to Theophilus, another Gentile, with one purpose in mind, so that Theophilus will have certainty about the things he has been taught. In other words, so that Theophilus with no will have the certain answer to the question, why are you a Christian? This is a especially challenging question for Luke, a Gentile, to answer to his friend Theophilus, who is also a Gentile. In the first century, when the church was considered by most people to just be a Jewish problem involving Jewish heretics. If, if Jesus was the Messiah, he was the Jewish Messiah. For the children of Israel. Why does a crucified Jewish heretic matter at all to a Gentile? It is why Luke is so important. Because unlike Matthew's gospel that goes back to Abraham to drive home the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Mm -hmm. To fold all humanity into God's salvation story. This is incredibly important because there is no gospel without the Old Testament. As a friend of mine liked to say, the new and the old contain the old and the new explained. From Luke chapter 4, Luke launches into a full account of Jesus' earthly ministry, grafting the Gentiles into the salvation story that begins here and is aimed straight at the cross. Where we find the only and final answer to the most important question you will ever answer. Why are you a Christian? And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. While we could actually write a book or volumes of books on these two verses, suffice it to say that this is not an accidental encounter by Jesus with the devil. Following his baptism, 
the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Uh, Matthew's gospel actually removes any doubt about why Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted. Went into the wilderness to be tempted. In verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. This temptation has some echoes of the garden. Did God really say? Satan is a deceiver. He's a master of compromise. And hunger presents an opportunity. Jesus is tempted partly because he's hungry. He's tempted partly because it's within his power to do it. In fact, you know, I think it's kind of funny. He could have actually turned Satan into a pepperoni pizza if he wanted to. I mean, he has the power to do whatever he decides to do. Why not turn the stone into bread? It's a very important question. In response, Jesus makes an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy 8, in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is on the plain of Moab near the end of 40 years of wandering by the people of Israel in the wilderness. And he's reminding the children of Israel how God led them into the wilderness to humble them, to test them, to know what was in their heart, whether they would keep his commandments. In the wilderness, God let them hunger so that they might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan is tempting Jesus, like the children of Israel in the wilderness, to turn from the word of God because he can and because he's hungry. But Jesus trusts God's word even with what is ahead. What is ahead? To understand the full weight of the temptation, we must know the answer to the question, why are you a Christian? The Apostle Paul answers it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 18, he writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In verse 22, for the Jew demand, Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And verse 30, because of him. You are in Christ. We can have a testimony because in refusing to turn stone to bread, he refused to turn from the cross. It may not be and may have never been apparent to you what is at stake in these early temptations at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. If Jesus had turned stone into bread to satisfy his hungry at the beginning of ministry, there would be no transfiguration. There would be no triumphal entry. There would be no trial and there would be no cross. And there would be no salvation. That's right. There is only one answer to the question, why are you a Christian? It is the cross of Christ. 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The second temptation is not unlike the first. Equally nonsensical. The devil tempts Jesus to trade the misery of the wilderness for glory. What glory could Satan possibly offer that Jesus did not already possess by right? Or was not already his by right? Satan has dominion over worldly kingdoms and only over worldly glory. He offers it to Jesus if he will bend a knee and worship him. But what Satan is offering Jesus is a compromise. Glory made of brass and tin in exchange for the glory of silver and gold that is, is his rightful inheritance. It is not as much a temptation to attain glory and power, but a compromise to trade greater glory for lesser glory. If Jesus will bow to him, he will have a lesser glory, but he will have no cross. Jesus again turns the word of God in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. And Jesus said to him, answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan offers a compromise for the cross, but at what price? In Hebrews chapter 2, there's an answer. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might test, taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus pursues us as the hound of heaven through the cross in order to bring us to glory, the superior glory, not the glory made of Brass and tin, but silver and gold. Jesus could have saved himself and avoided the cross or save us. Instead, without hesitation, he rejected the lesser glory and chose the cross so that we might share with him in the greater glory. In answer to the question, why are you a Christian? There is only one answer. It's the cross of Christ. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And their, hand, and their hands will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In his final temptation... Satan again tries to seize the moment, taking Jesus to the highest pinnacle of the temple and offer him, offering him another compromise. 
Misquoting Psalm 91, tempt, Satan tries to tempt Jesus to test the will of God. Jump off if you're the son of God. Surely God will not let anything happen to you. What he's really saying is, there's no cross. There's no cross. God's not going to let anything happen to you. But in response, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord God to, your, to the test. Pointing to the word of God, Jesus affirms that God keeps his promises to those who keep his commandments. Jesus' rebuttal is confirmation that he will trust the word of God and stay the course to the cross. The cross is non-negotiable. It is his purpose from the beginning. God will keep his promise because Jesus will do what we cannot do. He'll remain obedient to the cross. He'll pay the price that we cannot pay. So that we can reap the reward that we cannot earn. What will be your answer to the question, why are you a Christian? Will it be the same as in Paul's epistles? Like Galatians 6.14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ. The word has been crucified. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Or as he writes in Philippians chapter 2 verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Or Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. With its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus was unwilling to compromise, unwilling to put God to the test, unwilling to go in any direction other than the cross of Christ on your behalf. Why are you a Christian? It's because of the cross of Christ. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him for an opportune time. The devil ended every temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, but he did not depart for good. He continued to look for opportune times to tempt Jesus and to disrupt God's plan for salvation. Then, now, and in the future. We are living in an opportune time. Let me conclude this way. King of Kings is approaching its 20th anniversary. That is a long time. We are flawed people in a wilderness time, subject to temptation. The church has been through many significant changes in leadership, mission, vision, purpose. We love Joel. He's fairly new. We have a new calling to East Charlotte. We are tired. Times are hard. There are great uncertainties about the future. Month after month of pandemic is taking its toll. Some have given up. Some may yet. The political environment is discouraging. It's exhausting. Our city is in turmoil with unreconciled divisions. 
We are hungry and we are weak. And it often feels that we are a part of a body of Christ that is under attack. But the Holy Spirit has brought us here for a purpose. Amen. We are here being tempted. But God will not let it go to waste. That's right. We have hard work ahead and we have a choice. We will set our cares on the cross of Christ or we will compromise like the children of Israel did in the desert. Or we'll trade the cross for a loaf of bread and God's glory for brass and tin. And cast our cares on a wish dream. Our best hope for a facility in East Charlotte is a dying church. Mark Landon, former associate here and former rector of a mission plant in East Charlotte, said at our church picnic a few weeks ago that, like all of Charlotte, East Charlotte does not need another church. I agree. East Charlotte does not need another church, at least not one that's built on visionary dreaming, on a wish dream. God hates visionary dreaming. But in East Charlotte and all of Charlotte and all of the United States, all of America, where there remain thousands and thousands of people without a testimony, who are fleeing and hiding from God, there is an abundant need for the cross of Christ. Mm -hmm. This is the only thing that we carry into East Charlotte that has the slightest hope of making any lasting difference. That's right. The cross is the only thing that will unify our city. The cross is the only thing that can break down the walls that divide white and black, rich and poor, heaven and hell. It is the only answer for us, and it is the only answer for those whom God is calling us to serve in East Charlotte. Returning to Stott, he writes in his book, The Cross of Christ, Despite the great importance of his teaching, his example, and his works of compassion and power, none of these was central to Jesus' mission. What dominates his mind was not the living, but the giving of his life. As we pray about and plan for what is ahead, as we strategize and think and look for property, Shouldn't the same thing that dominated Jesus' mind dominate ours as well? The answer to the question is only one thing that is true and on which true unity can be established. Why are